Hey, Paul. This is Orson Scott Card. I thought I was the book guy. Now I find out you're the book guy. What am I? Oh, I guess I'm just the author of Ender's Game. Okay. show is brought to you by audible go to audibletrial.com slash book guys and get a free book just for trying them out for one month this is the book guys show my name is paul alves and i'm joined as always each and every single week by a great talented crew here sir jimmy how you doing doing fantastic here from the land of rotten tomatoes in north carolina good day how you doing? And uh, Padre SJ, all the way from California. Indeed, I'm coming to you from Washington, D.C. It's a, a city built on a swamp, and uh, it's never really changed. Yeah, you move around too much. I keep thinking you're in California, you're in Washington. Only the I Lord knows where the Padre is. <laughs> and, of course, Professor Allen, how you doing? Greetings from Central Ohio, or flyover country. And we are joined this week, gentlemen, to talk books, audiobooks, audio dramas, and podcasts by Jacob Hess. How you doing, Jacob? Hi, I'm coming from Salt Lake City. I'm happy to be with you. And your partner in crime is here as well, Phil Neisser. Hello, that's Phil Neisser, and I am in Canton, New York, way upstate near Canada. Well, Mr. Neisser, that's and it. nice to be here. Sparky the cat's in trouble because she gave me the uh, pronunciations here. So. <laughs> that's all right. Uh, <laughs> I like the way you said it. So, uh, yeah, nicer, nicer, sorry. <laughs> nicer, nicer than anybody, exactly. And Phil and Jacob, your book is You're Not As Crazy As I Thought, But You're Still Wrong, Conversations Between a Devoted Conservative and a Diehard Liberal. Uh, I got to say, we have quite the range of political views here as far as our panel, but you guys are pretty much at polar opposites of the, uh, the American landscape of politics. How, how did you guys meet and think about putting this book together? That was the point, of course, that we were lucky to meet each other at a conference, what, two, two and a half years ago, and uh, decided we both believed in dialogue, and instead of just telling other people to do it, we should do it ourselves. So since we disagree, we spent a couple of years talking about our, our differences. So I'm told that you spent over two years putting the book together? That's true. Yes, these things take a while. A lot of it was the... The conversations themselves, which are mostly in writing, uh, as well as just turning it into a book and yet keeping it, uh, keeping it a conversation, figuring out how to present that to readers so they could capture that, the conversational part of it. Now, uh, so, so did you do most of the, the writing uh, via email or was it, did you get together in person? We exchanged emails about different issues that were really hot and we would respond to each other's emails and at some point we would talk on the phone. We use different mediums just to uh, to explore, to really try to understand where we were, we were coming from. Once we had chosen a pile of issues, which took a little negotiation right there, we started by each writing a statement about our view, of our view on the matter, and sending it to the other person. And from there, we 
challenged each other, we asked questions, we commented on what the other person said and turned it into this back and forth, as in how could you believe that or what I'm hearing from you doesn't make sense or whatever, and uh, wove it all together into a set of chapters, one about each issue, gender roles and so on. How surprised were you by what the other one thought? I mean, had, had you expected sort of a, a caricature, you know, of the other side? Um, sort of were you surprised at either how well thought out it was or reasonable or, wow, this guy really is crazy? <laughs> I mean, I mean what, sort of, what biases did you have about the other side coming into the project? You know, I, I, I taught a liberal conservative dialogue course before meeting Phil, and one of the re- reactions of, of my students was they would come into the class thinking, I know what those liberals think. I, I, I know what they think. And, and that obviously leads you to not really be interested in hearing from the other side. I came to the dialogue thinking... There were things about Phil I didn't understand, and I wanted to be open to it. And I was quite surprised at some of the nuances and some of the insights that I found myself resonating with that Phil, this atheist, leftist guy, was voicing. You know, uh, my conservative community is like, you're a friend with with that kind of a person? <laughs> <laughs> I love him. Uh, we've, we've become dear friends. And I was I was quite surprised at how much I resonated with a number of things he shared. That's it. It's in, in, interesting once you take it out of straight partisan, you know, election vote type of stuff. If it's just two people having a conversation, how much more common ground we can have than they can have over in Washington or, or uh, state capitals. I, well, yeah. you know, it, it, the, the prejudice almost never survives the first encounter. It's one of the first things I learned working in D.C. You know, the first time I was up on the Hill actually meeting congressmen on both sides of the aisle, they're all there because they, they really do believe in what they're doing. They're, no one's twirling their mustache. No one's making evil plans for the domination <laughs> of the country. And, um, you know, it, it's funny. I, the question I, I would have for both of you is how does a discussion not degenerate into a shouting match? Because that seems like that's so much of what we've got in talking head shows and in, in political rallies where it's, it's one side saying, oh, yeah, you're going to generalize me. Well, I'm going to stereotype you. Uh, how, how do you remove that element from an honest-to-goodness debate, discussion, discourse? I think one key is some discussions have to be without an audience or when the participants aren't representing someone else. Because if, they if they're representing someone else when they're discussing, they're under a lot of pressure not to listen and really encounter the other person. Uh, so you need some of those discussions to happen among ordinary people or politicians who are doing something social but also talking about their disagreements, perhaps. Uh, it's interesting that on Capitol Hill, the dialogue has gotten more or the talk has gotten more partisan, more nasty, just as the politicians spend less time with each other across party lines. So they're not even having those conversations where they find out about each other's humanity. Yeah, that's one thing I've heard. I, you, know, just, you know, it seems like, or at least the, the legend is, and it seems like what you're saying is it's probably a, a lot of truth in it that in the 50s and 60s, maybe up, up in in, in into the seventies that that you could be friends across party lines and, and uh, social friends et, et cetera and that that again that seems to have fallen by the wayside at least 
Yeah, much more polarized now. Because of the atmosphere that's polarized, I've found it really helpful, both in the class and in other relationships, to actually have a conversation about the conversation. And that usually leads to some kind of ground rules, like how can we talk in a way that's healthy? I really don't have an interest to be fighting and debating. And so you allow each person in the conversation, whether it's a party of two or four, to go around and share what they need to feel safe. And you literally write them up as a kind of constitution of your conversations. My wife and I did this. (laughs) Uh, We come from really different socializations, and it's helped to actually lay out some things that make her feel comfortable, make me feel comfortable, and that's essentially what Phil and I did as well. I'd like to add something that one reason that people often end up shouting at each other, I think, is that there's this idea out there that if everyone's rational, they would all basically agree. If people accepted more the, that or understood more that there's, there's more than one rational, like reasonable, not necessarily right, maybe wrong, but reasonable take on an issue and disagreement is a good thing, then they'd be less inclined to shout at the person who doesn't agree with them. They might even think they might have something to tell me even though they're wrong. And so they're more likely to listen. Right. Now, are there any, any other topic, any topics in the book that uh, you started defending and then after hearing the uh, other author's view kind of changed your mind? Kind of sw- you know, swayed you the other way? Hmm. That Dick, hum is telling. Go, hmm. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> or did we agree to disagree my, on those topics? My point of view on that is <laughs> none of my political opinions changed. But definitely, I developed a deeper respect for social conservatives. I saw more common ground. We still disagree. We're still on opposite sides. But I realized, you know, a coalition could be possible about domestic violence, maybe. Uh, some other issues. So, yeah, my view of, of where Jacob was coming, where conservatives come from, was changed a little. And I'm being the only Canadian, I think, here on the panel, uh, see, in our government, we do have that option where... You can have a coalition government. You can have, uh, you know, uh, conservatives uh, having a majority in the House, but having, you know, the liberals being uh, a minority and having to work together on issues where I believe in the United States, uh, it's take it all or leave it kind of thing. Yeah, I can speak a little to that, that uh, in parliamentary systems, the government could fall apart, so to speak, if they don't get along to a degree. They could have to have a new election. Right. Right. If there isn't support there enough for the prime minister. And so there's a sort of pressure on the politicians to to give it a shot. Uh, Very different here. You can get reelected in your own district. Maybe just bring a little bacon home and hammer away at the other side. That's right. (laughs) Raise a lot of campaign money and you're going to get reelected. Phil, sorry. A quick question. One of the um, the topics that we uh, I was working at at one of our local universities here was. This idea that in past elections, if your party lost, what you would do is you would draw a little closer to the middle to, to broaden your voting base and possibly win the next election. What we've seen in the past years, and this is both sides, this is not just one conservative or liberal side, when you lose, you go more to the extreme and you, you sort of polarize yourself. Now, this, this is not a, a, a new phenomenon, but it's definitely a phenomenon that we, that we see more and more. And I'm going to use this example, but again, I'm not saying this is the only example of it, but we see it a lot in the Tea Party. They're very, it's a very, very active lobby group here in, uh, in Washington where the message is 
if you if you capitulate at all, we'll vote you out. If you talk to the people we don't want you to talk to, then you're betraying the the uh, the guidelines of what we we voted you in on. So, I mean, when you've got that kind of environment, it, it's not just difficult to communicate; it's it's openly hostile to any sort of communication. So, <laughs> what do we do? Can you? So, uh, I guess what I'm asking is, can you fix our political system? <laughs> you know the same. The same thing. Oh, you were gonna. You were asking that of Phil, but just a, a comment. This is Jacob. The same thing happens in Jewish-Palestinian dialogue. People over in the you know in the middle of that conflict who who really sit down and try to dialogue are sometimes accused on both sides of being you know collaborators and conspiring with the enemy. That hasn't stopped uh, people like Liz uh, and Levy, uh, the Trobman. Uh, family has done a lot of work to invite Jewish-Palestinian living room dialogues, and they've spread across California and actually at different parts of the world. Small steps, just bringing normal folks together, you know, not, you know, getting the leaders together is one thing, but just normal people getting them together. Um, And, you know, to your earlier question, one of you you asked, did our, did our views change? I want to, you know, I was thinking about it, kind of sitting with the question. My views changed a lot. Uh, not in the sense of, like, the typical conversion you would think of. In fact, we had a deal that neither one of us could convert to the other side until the book was published. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we didn't, it was kind of a running joke. that yeah, uh, that credibility, yeah. Phil couldn't become a Christian and get baptized until after. No, the goal never was conversion of that sort. But the conversion I'm talking about is I, I can speak to my conservative friends and say, someone can be atheist, leftist, not believe almost anything that we believe and still be a good, moral, wonderful man that is not my enemy, that is not the devil. And that's surprising. I have I know a lot of conservatives who have just fallen into that rhetoric that if you disagree about this, then you've got to be my enemy. And I, I can't stomach that anymore. So there's a kind of humanization that happens in dialogue where you can no longer think of the, that other side as a demon. And uh, anyway, long, long answer. But yeah, I, think, I think part of what you said about uh, you know, this is not uniquely an American uh, situation, which is, I guess, somewhat encouraging. But I think one thing that it sort of reminds me of is, is in some way, sports fans that uh, here I live in, in central Ohio, and it's not enough to love the Ohio State Buckeyes, which you have to. In college football, you actually have to also hate Michigan. They go <laughs> hand in hand. You cannot separate those two things. And I think it's sort of in some way we have that's not enough that I be right, you also have to be wrong. <laughs> I, I resonate with what you just said a lot. I resonate with that a lot because I'm a, I'm a big sports fan, and yet the way sports is announced, I see the damage when people start to think of the world in terms of sports. And I've heard people talk that way about politics. Uh, they're a fan of the Republicans. Go team, right? So right. they'll say whatever it takes to win. That's the winning spirit. You know, a few lies at the uh, convention, hey, the goal is to win the game, right? And, and hate the opposition and rah, rah, rah. And it's not a game, you know, it's not, pol- it's not uh, sports. Yeah, a lot of people do take it that way. And uh, th- that makes it very difficult for, for voters to, uh, especially those not, not too involved in politics, just those sort of sitting on the sidelines. 
they have a hard, difficult time going for the other team. They have to see their team win or lose, and, but that's their team. And uh, folks, sometimes, you know, you got to look at the politician who's running in your yeah. area, what they're, what they're actually bringing to the table. I mean, it's easy to just dismiss them outright because they're not on your team, but might be the better man or woman for the job. Yeah, I think one thing going on is it's human nature to want things simple and to go for loyalties and enjoy that community that comes from that loyalty and hating some other community. But dialogue can be a cultivated practice that, that prevents that. If you have a practice of dialogue in a society, then the circle is broadened and people don't end up falling into this, these, these nasty partisan simplicities. Another thing I want to say is very partisan, which is that I think this movement away from moderate politics is mostly been initiated by the right in the United States. In other countries and other places at times, it's been the left. But in the United States, it's been the right. It started with Goldwater winning the nomination and Rockefeller getting booed at that convention because he spoke of extremism in the party as a problem. It's been a strategy. They realized we can win tapping fundamentalism in, the Ameri- in America. No, I don't know. Uh, what do you think? Oh, I, I absolutely agree. And, you know, here in Canada, uh, as far as dialogue, that there really isn't much between conservatives and liberals. I mean... Uh, although our parties have different names, it's still the same. Uh, you know, you reverse the colors, our liberals wear red and our conservatives wear blue in Canada, but it's pretty much the, the same animals. But uh, other than in a pub, <laughs> I, I never see a forum for uh, just the common folk to get together and discuss politics. And usually when they are, they're in different forums. Like if you're, you know, if, you, if, if you're in line to watch the new Michael Moore film, uh, you might not find many conservatives to have a conversation with. You know, so the only uh, forum that I see that people actually have a chance to uh, mingle between parties is usually in a, in a bar scenario. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I would, have to, I would have to say, Phil, I think both sides get pretty strident. My grandpa has been a Democrat his whole life in Utah. I think he's one of five. And uh-huh. he, he hardly <laughs> recognizes the Democratic Party anymore. It has changed a lot as well. The, the positions taken and some of the ideology... I know it's popular to, to point to the conservatives as the, the ones who are doing it more. I tend to think it's, it is happening in various communities, including various religious communities. Like, any community has the potential to do that. That's what I would say. There was a time in American politics where conservative and liberal did not totally line up with Democrat and Republican. It was more regional. We're just talking maybe a generation and a half ago where there were places for moderate and liberal Republicans, those things actually existed because the party and the ideology were not exactly the same. And there were, there were uh, uh, conservative uh, Democrats. And, and again, that, you know, that doesn't exist anymore. So it's this alignment of ideology and, and party that actually a, seems a fairly recent phenomenon in the U.S., I grew up diehard Republican. You know, I was a Californian. I'm an immigrant and um, absolutely identified with the Republican Party. And that, it must have been sometime in the 90s, say mid-90s, definitely during the Clinton years that I started – I find my ideology aligned more with the Democratic Party instead. And now there are very few Republicans that, that I side with, which is, which is weird. I get, I get this all the time where people are saying, well, how can you be – X. How can you be democratic? How can you be liberal? Whatever it might be, and be a priest, and be Catholic, and be whatsoever. And 
the, the question is always baffling to me because it, I, you know, I always try to tell them, look, it, it's not about what party they're, they're, they're for. It's about what their politics are and what they say they stand for. I, I, I'd love to read your book and just see how that dialogue works. When, when you do have the one-on-one sitting down actually talking about the things that are important to you, do you get it? Do you just sort of humor the other person um, and then move on? Or is, is there an actual softening of that sort of extremist stance? I can say that I really got it in that I, I got that Jacob cares. I got that he's a, a good person. Not just a good person as in I like him, but a good person as in good intent, caring about other people, trying to do the right thing, trying to do some of the same things that I want to get done. I think what he, the policies he's for would be a disaster, so we, we don't agree, but you know, I can see that. And, and uh, if people converse, they, they'll see that it's, that's true across the party lines. But I think right now, people, if they hear that you're a Democrat, some people just believe they know what you're for. You know, they think you're for socialized medicine and the U.N. taking over the United States and and uh, so on. Right. And it's all other people. If they hear you're Republican, they think that you're for not allowing women out of the home or whatever. Right. Just these extreme views of what the other side is for. Uh, one, one great way for conservatives uh, to find out more about liberals and liberals to find a little bit more about conservatives, of course, would be your book. You're not as crazy as I thought, but you're still wrong. Uh, gentlemen, where can folks find more information on your book? Just going to Amazon. That's it's on it's on Amazon as well. The blog is politicaldialogue.com with a hyphen in it. What's the response been to the book so far? The response is is very good. I don't think the word's gotten out all that far yet, but the response is very powerful from a lot of people and a lot a lot of Republicans and a lot of Democrats. And we find that we find that very heartening. That the the book actually delves into issues. Okay, how could you believe that about gay marriage? And then we, we go back and forth. And so if, you, if one reads the book, they, if they read about it, they can actually participate in the conversation in a way. So a liberal can learn a lot about conservative views by reading the book. Not about what the politicians say, but when they're on the stump, but about what lies behind a lot of conservative views and, and get to appreciate that and vice versa. At the end, Paul... We invite others to do the same. It's an invitation of uh, find somebody that is across the line and set up a conversation. The, the bottom line for me is this is a really fun thing to do. It's not, it may feel scary or weird or pointless, but when you actually do it, it's, it's very fulfilling. And you come away learning a lot. Uh, anyway, that's our invitation in the book. Make sure that they're going to political-dialogue.com. Yes, thank you, Sir Jimmy. Yes, we tried to get without the dash, but someone was sitting on that site or something like that. Yeah, I just, I just pulled it up, and uh, then I went and Googled it. If you just Google political dialogue blog, you can find it right there, but just uh, get everybody pointed in the right direction. Hey, are you guys going to be able to stick uh, with us through the rest of the show? We're going to take a little break about right now. Very yeah. good. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, here's the break. You know what? I don't ever have time to read books anymore. I used to love to read books. I have tons of them in my story space. And yet now I, I won't buy one. You know, for, for just for pleasure, I don't have time. I'm always working. I've got two businesses that I run. 
So what I need is somebody to read something to me. I want books at the speed of sound. That's what I want. That's what I need. And that's why I listen to ND Stories. Neil Desperando. Fictional stories about truth, life, and the human condition. ND Stories can be heard here on the No Agenda stream, 3 p.m. Eastern, Wednesdays. And also at ndstories.com. listening to noagendastream.com all talk no commercials no agenda the think geek item of the week from thinkgeek.com each week that uh, professor allen or sir jimmy or padre remind me we do a think geek item of the week and i believe this week professor allen has one for us well in honor of uh in honor of the, the season uh, premiere or series premieres, they say over in England, of the new Doctor Who season, we've got a bow ties are cool T-shirt. No tying of the bow tie required. It's printed onto the, onto the T-shirt. Makes Very it much nice. easier. No fez included, by the way. Uh, one item that I, I tried to order but they're sold out is the, um, the Doctor Who sonic screwdriver television remote. It works with any infrared device. So uh, anything infrared in your home, uh, you can control by programming uh, swipes or clicks of the screwdriver into it. So it is a fully functional. I believe it's based on the same hardware as that Harry Potter wand we talked about before on the show. Uh, Pretty cool. And you can get a deal on all those by going to bookguys.ca slash thinkgeek. That's this week's. The Think Geek. Item of the week from ThinkGeek.com. And as always, we're having issues with Skype, and hopefully our the rest of the hosts and guests can hear me. And we will continue on and do what we normally do at the top of the show, which is talk about what's on our Kindles, what's on our iPads, what's on our nightstands, our Nooks, or different tablets, all the wonderful devices you can read books on. Uh, Professor Allen, what have you been reading this week? Well, I, I just I put a uh, a review on our on our site this week of a book uh, that's coming out next month called "The Law of Superheroes" by a, a couple of a uh, couple of lawyers, James Daly and Ryan Davidson, and they basically take comic book scenarios or superpowered scenarios and say what would the effects be, uh, you know, in in the law of these things. They're sort of right. famous. Or uh, you know, uh, uh, cases in 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 the comic books. Uh, at one point, uh, Peter Parker, or excuse me, Spider-Man, spoilers, was was testifying <laughs> in court, and you know, could would he be allowed to testify in uniform? Uh, you know, questions like that, or and 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 really, with the exception of of uh, you know the movie The Incredibles, um, you know, very little sort of thought in a in a legal sense is, is, uh, is, is put to these issues. So it's in essence an, an almost an intro level legal text talk about constitutional law and what makes a contract and, you know, all those various legal issues, but, you know, all the examples that they use are either from actual, uh, you know, comic book stories or sort of hypothetical cases relating to comic characters and superheroes. Like uh, you, uh, one of the examples, uh, at least in the description of the book, was uh, Cyclops's eye beam. Would he be allowed to carry that under <laughs> under your constitution? Is that a right to bear arms? 
Yeah, they yeah they do. They talk for a long time about the about the Second Amendment and you know our Wolverine's claws covered under the Second Amendment or or uh, you know silly silly things like that. Pretty fun. My one one of my favorite sections was about um, about. Uh, I'd like if, to see uh, the TSA give uh, Wolverine a pat down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good luck with that. Good good luck with that. Was uh you know if you uh, I mean comic book characters you know when they die have a have a habit of not staying dead, and so you know can you be can you be convicted of of uh, of murder if someone comes back from the dead a few years later or do you get immediately released if you've been convicted? What about the estate <laughs> taxes of the person? Who was dead, paid estate taxes, <laughs> then comes back from the dead. This is where we need our political authors <laughs> to debate the value of the estate tax in a world where uh, Superman doesn't stay dead for very long. Gentlemen, debate. <laughs> I'm just thinking about my pre-law professor friends, and I got to tell them about this book. I think they could perhaps I, use it in their classes, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it was. I, like I said, I mean, I'm I am not a lawyer, nor do I play one on a podcast, but. I ha- I was able to follow the arguments and the issues. It was a fun, a fun read. Uh, you know, I get questions all the time, Professor. People uh, speaking. Not you're not. You don't play a lawyer on the podcast. But you don't play a professor on our podcast either. You are a professor. I am an actual professor of business and finance. It we, is a scary thought. We were talking before the show because uh, we've got a doctor, priest, professor, and we got to We got at the before the end of the show. We got to write a joke. <laughs> you guys we walk into walk- a podcast. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Sir Jimmy, I know you've started something uh, recently, an audiobook. Science fiction. Yeah, I've sort of uh, fallen behind here, uh, catching up on a book that was reviewed about way back at the beginning when the podcast first started, before I joined on, but uh, Orson Scott Card. I've been uh, trying to get uh, this book on hand, so I went to uh, Ender's Game, and I was down in the garden today pulling out you know, rotten tomatoes and getting cleared out for, you know, plans for the fall. And I probably got through, you know, a, a quarter of the book already. And I'm real excited to finish it up because I know it's going to be a book that uh, Nobot's really going to enjoy. I've already given him the synopsis and he, he can't wait for me to finish it up. I'm reading it currently. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago that that multi-voice audio version is terrific. I'm about halfway through it. We'll need to make sure we have that, that conversation on the show when we're, when we're all done with it. Absolutely. I plan on being done by next week. I don't know if you can do that, but that, that's probably the schedule I'm on. I'll see what I can do. All right. Brilliant. I'm in. And it's uh, bookguys.ca slash audible, and you get a free, you can actually uh, listen to Ender's Game free just for trying it out. That's what I said. Bookguys.ca slash audible. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's not Scott. even close to what you said. <laughs> Orson uh, Scott Card is a Mormon like me. He's one of those scary Mormons. Oh, I know. He, and he lives right here in town. We're trying to run him out on a rail. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sir Jimmy, you, you actually found some signed uh, copies of his book, and you hollowed him out. Being yeah, I found, I found some copies <laughs> of uh, books that he had signed because he lives right here in town. And I went to the Goodwill one day looking for some books, and uh, there was like on one, on one wall there was like four or five books, and every one I opened up had his Big giant signature and like a, you know, a dedication to somebody in it. So I snatched them all up. You know, buck a piece. Can't beat that. Seems, that seems pretty un, un, uh, ungrateful. 
<laughs> oh well. Um, no, I mean, I'm, I mean, I, I, I mean, the person who donated them to Goodwill. Well, I, I'm very grateful because I got that book on my shelf now. Signed, my only yeah. signed hollow book. I gotta say. Well, they are. They're definitely. They're still. They're still generating pleasure. And uh, Padre, what's new on mm. your uh, Kindle, iPad, Nexus? Actually, all of those. Uh, this this is a book of shame for me, uh, in, in this sense. Oh, you're after, finally reading uh, the that, 50 Shades? 40 Shades of Grey. I'm hanging <laughs> up right now. No, <laughs> it's, it's 40 Shades of White. It's, it's, a one, it's a purity book. It's a great... No, no. It's, uh, it, it was a, a book that uh, someone tweeted me, you know, have you read this? And uh, when I replied, no, I heard about it, but I've never had a chance to read it. it uh, uh, there was like 30 people who jumped on me saying, how can you not read it? The main character is a Jesuit. And so... Uh, it, it's called The Sparrow. It's written by a woman by the name of Mary, Mary Doria Russell, who I met about 15 years ago when I was studying philosophy in Chicago. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's an interesting book. She actually researched it so she knew enough about the Society of Jesus, about my religious order. She knew enough about uh, space travel that it's not a completely ridiculous book, but essentially it's about how you had a Jesuit astronomer who discovers a civilization broadcasting a few light years away and the Vatican privately funds a, uh, a trip to another world. At the time, it, it actually made waves because it was a well-written book, well-researched book, and also because, uh, I, no spoilers, but the content is pretty, let's just say a lot of things happen that you don't expect out of priests and people of faith. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's been a really fun read. I, I've actually got the hardcover version because I had a signed copy from Mary but uh, but I've been reading a Kindle version, and I've got the audiobook version just uh, just because that's that's how I roll. Now, <laughs> uh, one of the things one of the things I really enjoyed about this was the way that they traveled was they they captured a near Earth asteroid, and they used what's uh, what's called a, a mass driver, which is basically a big electromagnetic cannon that propels chunks of the asteroid out of the back. The asteroid itself becomes its own fuel uh, its own fuel tank and a protection <clears throat> system from from collision. It's 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 a it's a really cool way to geek out, and it's just sort of a bonus that the main character is is a, a member of of uh, you know my brotherhood. Uh, I, I actually I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. Sparrow, and uh, you know what? I've got a little clip from Audible here. This is actually narrated by David Kalachi, and I'm going to play a little clip from that one. Went each morning to look in on the man. He had no idea if Sandoz was aware of being observed. It was a familiar feeling. When very young, when the father general was just plain Vince Giuliani, he had been fascinated by Emilio Sandoz, who was a year ahead of Giuliani during the decade-long process of priestly formation. A strange boy, Sandoz. A puzzling man. Vincenzo Giuliani had made a statesman's career of understanding other men, but he had never understood this one. Gazing at Emilio, sick now and almost mute, Giuliani knew that Sandoz was unlikely to give up his secrets anytime soon. This did not distress him. Vincenzo Giuliani was a patient man. One had to be a patient man to thrive in Rome, where time is measured not in centuries, but in millennia, where patience and the long view have always distinguished political life. The city even gives its name to the power of patience. Romanita. Romanita arises from a single principle. Cunctando regitur mundis. Waiting, one conquers all. So even in that uh, little preview there, I learned something. <laughs> That's a little what we too much to Latin for me. <laughs> Brilliant. Nice writing. I liked it. 
And uh, Phil, Jacob, please, uh, is there anything on your bookshelves uh, that you've read recently you'd like to maybe give a quick little uh, thumbs up for our audience? We'll start I'm with- reading The Courage of Truth by Michel Foucault right now. And that's for me. It's a little bit for my class, prepare for class, but it's not a book the students are reading. Foucault died of, from AIDS complications in the 70s and still one of my favorite political theorists. And this book, The Courage of Truth, is transcripts from some of his last lectures when he, he's very accessible in this book, whereas his earlier writings are very hard to comprehend. Right. So I'm enjoying that book quite a bit. Uh, I, there's a book called The Bonds That Make Us Free, written by a, a professor of philosophy. And I'm, I don't like all the pop psychology books on relationships. This is a book written by a philosopher. It's, uh, it's the best relationship help book I've ever, ever read. Bonds that make us free. So, yeah, I've enjoyed that. Excellent, excellent. And one thing we usually do at the end of the show, gentlemen, is we talk about some book news. And we even have a jingle. Book news. Book news. Uh, Amazon's ebooks are coming to Nook and Kobo. Not Amazon's entire catalog, but uh, their New York-based publishing imprint, which I believe is, was called uh, Little Brown Publishing. Uh, it is now uh, pumping their books out to Nook and Kobo, so Canadian uh, readers who have purchased either one of those tablets uh, will now have a little bit more selection on their tablets. I still say if you're Canadian, go for an iPad or an Android device that allows you to install various stores on it. Uh, next up, gentlemen, we talked before about the Godfather series and uh, Mario Puzo's family, who are now the, the heirs and the, they control his properties. Uh, they're ra- apparently, they're rather upset uh, that uh, Paramount tried to stop the publishing of that last novel, uh, The Family Corleone, which I really enjoyed. Uh, they're so upset that they now want to try to stop Paramount from being able to put forth any sequels to the Godfather series. So they are now taking them to court. So Paramount's lawyer is, of course, you know, shooting back and forth with them, and uh, this could be a bad thing for the Godfather series, as far as the movies, anyways. I was kind of hoping to see the family Corleone brought to the big screen. Oh, but that's not how Hollywood works anymore. We wouldn't give it a sequel. We would reboot it. It'd be <laughs> darker right. and more action-packed. <laughs> They'd all be wearing black. <laughs> I have to say, you know, those... Those were very good movies, and I hate to say that because they were so violent and they seemed to celebrate this loyalty family thing combined with all this violence. But they were good movies. I I think so, too. Brilliant movies, actually. Uh, We also got here, I got a small little story here from Carrie Potter's author, of course, J.K. Rowling, uh, has had approval from her town council to build... Two giant structures, uh, basically tree houses for her children, 12 meters high. <laughs> they feature tall, wow. comical roofs and turreted windows in the style of a Hogwarts castle from the Harry Potter movies. And of course, the neighbors are a bit upset. You know, <laughs> the, you know you've got to, if you're like J.K. Rowling's neighbor and, you're, and you, you had like a, a seven foot tall fence denied, you know, now she's building 12 meter tall castles on her property. I'm just saying. I mean, doesn't doesn't she need four, one for each house, or are the Hufflepuffs getting uh, getting the short end of the stick again? <laughs> I, I think two 12-meter tall uh, towers is enough for... How many kids does she have? I think two. 
Yeah, each each one of them gets a castle, so they'll be fine. You know, I don't think the neighbors really have cause to complain here. Their property values are upped by the fact that they live next to JK. So if she wants to build a treehouse in her backyard, more power to her. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you know, she could put a microwave receiver on top and provide her neighbors with cell service, maybe. They can rent out their laneways for driving, you know, for parking, $20 a, for an hour or something. When people finally come visit her house. JK, if you want to get out of the public spotlight... Building a huge, you know, Harry Potter-esque castle in front of your house is not the way to get the public to leave you alone. Uh, A book coming up soon. This is coming out of Reuters in Havana. Former Cuban leader Fidel Castro. He's been out of the public eye for a few months, and apparently the rumors of his death have been greatly exaggerated. He's apparently working on a book with uh, Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez, and uh, we don't have much information on the book yet. But um, I don't think it's going to be very pro-USA. Just, just shooting it out there. But apparently the two of them are getting together on a book, and I don't know if this book will see the light of day in uh, North America, but we will try to get a copy and review it for the show when it does finally come out. could be interesting. It's, it's, it's probably just a fair and balanced political debate like our guests. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. It's, it's yeah. pretty much, this, I think it's the same idea. Except uh, not only will it make it to the states, but it will be turned into a movie featuring Johnny Depp, <laughs> playing both parts. Playing both parts. Playing both parts. That's right, uh, gentlemen. I think that's it for this week. Uh, we've had a lot of great, great talk, great ch- uh, conversation here, Jacob, Phil. Oh, thank you, Paul, and everybody. That was awesome. Thank yes. you so much. Good to thank be with you, y'all. Paul. Me too. And uh, Padre, great to talk to you, Padre. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor Allen. Sir Glad Jimmy, to. I don't know with all our Skype issues if you can hear the music in the background, but we're at about that time. We'll be back next week with some new guests, and uh, very soon we'll be in video mode. So, gentlemen, you got to get the haircuts, clean up the offices. <laughs> Just saying. And put on some pants. And yes, Sir Jimmy, we might have to start wearing pants. Never. <laughs> or at least aim the camera up. We'll be back next week, folks. My name is Paul Alves, and uh, we'll be back. Same book time, same book channel. Stay tuned, book readers and book listeners. Paul the Book Guy will be back next week. Same book time, same book channel. 